minutes late. I'll begin very quick. Oh, you wanted to, uh, all right, fine, Steve. By all means. This on? Yes. Hi, we're ready. As Connie just said, we're ready to start. Uh, I'm Stephen Kroll. I'm chairman of the Penn Children's Book Committee. I'd like to thank you all for coming this evening. Delighted to see you. I'd also like to say that it, um, it has been called to my attention that a few people came uh, at 6 o'clock rather than 8. Uh, there was a little confusion about that just because of the way the flyer uh, had been written. Uh, for any of you who did come at, at that early hour and then had to wander in the wilderness for, for two hours, we apologize for whatever uh, problem that may have caused. Anyhow, we're delighted you're here. I'd also like to say that we are delighted at Penn to have had the co-sponsorship of the Association of American Publishers on this program. And I would also like to introduce to you our moderator, Connie Epstein, uh, who will be handling things from here on in. Uh, Connie is the former editor-in-chief of children's books at William Morrow. Uh, she is a reporter, a freelance reporter in the area of children's book publishing now, and also the New York contributing editor of the Bulletin for the Society of Children's Book Writers. So, Connie, if you will. Thanks a lot, Steve. And it certainly is a pleasure to uh, be here with you all tonight. As you can see, we have a very illustrious panel uh, gathered together for you. And the purpose of the program is to illuminate some of the uh, different ways that authors, illustrators, and editors work together to produce the very best book. Now, obviously, like a lot about uh, publishing and, and children's books in particular, these relationships are very personal. So I don't think that there's any one universal answer to the, the best way to work together. And what we want to explore instead are uh, different specific instances so that we have pairs of uh, authors and editors here who can talk about what they actually do when they're making a book. And each one of these pairs, and in one case a trio, uh, is going to tell us a little bit about how they started working together, uh, how they pace the consultations, how and when they uh, consult with each other, and a word about what each expects the other to bring to this relationship. After you've heard these three instances, uh, I think you'll be able to draw some of your own conclusions about what really goes on behind the scenes. And uh, uh, there'll be time afterwards to uh, ask any follow-up questions on specifics that uh, may interest you in particular. Uh, the shape of the program will be uh, to take the authors in alphabetical order, and I'll introduce uh, author and editor uh, before each presentation. So that leads us to Lillian Hoban and Sally Doherty. 
Uh, Lillian Hoban is a very familiar name to all of you, I'm sure. She started her career uh, illustrating picture books by her husband, Russell Hoban, and uh, I'm sure many of you remember the Francis series that they did together. And she says that really inevitably she was drawn into the writing and editorial process as they worked on these books together and sometimes came up with an idea for a book. And uh, when she did, the book came out under joint authorship. So uh, some years later, when they divorced, uh, she said that at the urging of Ursula Nordstrom, uh, she went on to write and illustrate her own books, and she calls Ursula uh, probably the single greatest influence on her careers. Uh, she began working with Sally Doherty three years ago, and she says that this relationship is very much in the Ursula Nordstrom tradition. Sally uh, came into book publishing, children's book publishing, in 1984 as an editorial assistant in the Crown Juvenile Department. Uh, she then went to Scholastic, where she was an assistant editor in Scholastic's Arrow Book Club, and that's grades four to six. Is that right? The, or, yeah. Um, and in 1986, joined the Harper Juvenile Department where she's been for the last three years. Her specialty is picture books, and in particular, the I Can Read series, and she and Lillian work together now. So, tell us a little bit about how you do it. <laughs> well, maybe I should start. And uh, let me just tell you that when I first came into Sally Doherty's office, it was with palpitations of the heart because I had been through a couple of editors uh, that were not really as uh, interested in being editors as they were in being writers. And I found when I met Sally that she really was in the, the tradition of Ursula. And uh, for all of us, those of us who knew Ursula and those of us who didn't. Uh, let me just go back to some of the things that she stood for. Ursula never, never told you what to write. What she would say in the margin was simply, this is not good enough for you, but you'll know how to take care of it which left you with the feeling, A, that you were a lot smarter than you really were because, you know, this was not good enough for you and you could do better. And yes, you would be able to take care of it because she really knew that you could. Now, there aren't too many editors who know how to do that, who know how to allow you to develop your material so that it is really your material, but it has gotten there, gotten to its highest point of fruition because an editor has allowed you to do it and has allowed you to understand 
what your material really is. Uh, I think this is especially important for young writers. I can remember having been with Ursula for many years, writing a story that I wasn't quite sure of. And this was a, a spoof. It was a spoof uh, about Victoriana. And I didn't send it to uh, an editor at Harper. I sent it elsewhere. And the editor completely misunderstood what my material was about. I'm not saying that the editor was wrong. She was probably right in assuming that uh, children from four to eight aren't terribly interested in spoofs, or can they understand them. But what she should have said to me was, look, this is not good material for a children's book. Instead of which, the material was changed to suit the editor, and I ended up with a rather saccharine and sweet story. And every once in a while when I reread it, I think, how in the world did I ever write this? Uh, it simply is because the editor did not allow me to use the material that I had to the best of its advantage, or simply to say, this is not good material, or you're not capable of writing a spoof for four to eights, or perhaps four to eights are not capable of understanding a spoof. Instead of which, the idea was, oh, this is somebody who has a name. If we publish this book, it's going to make money. Let's do what we can with it. I don't find this is true with Sally. <laughs> <laughs> Sally really is, although I don't think she ever met Ursula, I think she's in the tradition of the Nordstrom editors, which is to try to get the best that the author can possibly get out of the author's material. Now in my case, uh, I generally know what I want. I know what my material is, and I know more or less how to get the best out of it. With Sally, I am fortunate enough to have somebody who has a good ear, which is very important to me. I cannot abide an editor with a tin ear. And uh, I've had several along the line. <laughs> Sally is a wonderful editor. We get along beautifully. And I'm going to hand the microphone over to her. <laughs> um, I just add, I guess, to that, that um, Lillian has been writing I Can Reads for a long time. And I don't think she has difficulty writing them. There, It's not an easy kind of book to write. You have to keep. Um, the story active and interesting, fast-paced, and yet not use vocabulary that is beyond an eight-year-old, and keep the story primarily in dialogue. And you cannot really have, uh, you don't have room for any extraneous words. And this is not an easy thing to do. And a lot of people coming into the publishing world have a uh, really difficult time with it. I think Lillian's been at it for years. Um, I get a manuscript from Lillian. It just doesn't need a lot of work. Um, very easy to be Lillian's editor. And I think that's true for a lot of people, uh, not just me. Um, and Lillian has an objectivity, which is also something I don't understand. I don't think I have it on my own. If I write something, I don't feel I can um, approach it from a distance, which I think Lillian does. She can step back from it and say, oh, this line doesn't work, and it's not a personal 
thing with her to delete it or to change it. She realized, you know, the story exists separately from herself. Um, a lot of writers, I think, write in a different way, and this is hard for them to disassociate themselves from the words. It's too close to their personalities. Um, so she will accept changes as a separate person from the story, and I think that's partly why it's very easy. But you've been at it for a while, so it's just not a difficult thing for you, I think. I, I really think there's something else that is involved in, in, in this, and it's not just being at it for a while. It has to do with, with the generation that I come from. It would never occur to me to hand in a manuscript that I thought needed work. It just wouldn't occur to me. Uh, just as it wouldn't occur to me to give my mother or my father any trouble. If I had problems, I kept them to myself. My children don't. <laughs> uh, my children also, when they work with Sally, as uh, one of them does, uh, has no fear of handing in a manuscript that needs work. Uh, I mean, this is a normal thing to her, you know, an editor is there to help. For me, um, you don't hand in something that isn't just about as perfect as you can get it. There are two reasons for that. I suppose the first is that I cannot abide rejection. I don't want anybody to say, no, this won't do. And so I make it so that they can't possibly say this won't do. And the other really has to do with having been sort of brought up in the depression. You know, you, you, you just did the best you could, and that was all there was to it. Uh, you didn't expect anybody to help you. That's not what an editor was there for. She wasn't there to help you. She was there to maybe see to it that you got the best out of yourself. But she certainly wasn't there to tell you what the story was about. And I, I really think that that has something to do with having been born when I was born. Uh, I feel kind of sorry for, for people that, that uh, were born in the 50s and 60s because they really expect that the editor is going to write the story for them. And in fact, I find as an illustrator that frequently I am forced to edit before I can illustrate and I get madder than hell because that's not my job. It really isn't my job. But with a lot of young writers, I am in a position where just reading the material and trying to do the pictures, I see that if certain parts of the material was deleted, it would be a much better book, it would make for better pictures, and therefore I become a sort of editor. I might ask a question at this point. I think perhaps you've answered it. Um, I'm always curious, when does the editor first see a manuscript? And I gather in your case, uh, it's finished by the time out, yes. And th there's no in-progress consultation then. There is uh, up to a point, yes. But in general, the, the manuscript is just, in general, the manuscript is just about as good as I can possibly make it. I did learn one thing, which I, I, I suppose I shouldn't really tell you, but uh, 
During the course of my marriage, my husband had a lot of, of jobs, a variety of different jobs, and he understood that there was something called job fright. And he said, never give an editor a manuscript that is absolutely perfect. Give them something where they have to do something, <laughs> otherwise they'll have job fright. <laughs> Thank you, Lillian. <laughs> I'm glad you're sparing me of all that. Um, I, I just want to add here that it, I don't mean to um, be pejorative about people who do like to go through a lot of revisions and, and work uh, more heavily with their editors. I don't. Uh, people work differently, and some people really work well with a lot of revision. They work, their best writing comes after several revisions, and as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. You know, it's it's everyone has a very individual style. Um, Lillian's style is is very much a perfectionist, and um, other people just don't for one reason or another. I think it's some sort of uh, innate quality. I don't know how you would develop that where you um, have that objectivity, and some people just don't, and that's not a bad thing. I think good books come either from many different styles, not just from one. But didn't you say, Lillian, to me once that when you were a dancer that um, this helps you with your pacing? Um, working with Lillian involves also going through the uh, dummy and getting the pictures to match the text and keep the story flowing in a quick, in a fast-paced way. And you were a dancer at one point, and that would help. Yeah, I do think that, that in dummying a book, the fact that I was a dancer and a choreographer does help to keep the pages turning. And, um, but I don't think that that is really, you know, you don't have to be a dancer to, to understand how to illustrate <laughs> a book. I do think it, it helps if you have a feeling of pacing and a feeling of when certain things should, should occur. Um, but that's also true in writing. I think it's very important to know when the rhythm of a book should change. I can remember a, a very good editor saying to me, I love this manuscript, but right in the middle, you need a change of rhythm. It's all too much the same. And I reread the manuscript and, and she was absolutely right. It needed a change of rhythm. You suddenly felt that you needed a breath, a breath of fresh air, because everything had been paced and, and everything, it was almost as though you knew exactly what was going to happen. And uh, it takes a really good editor to understand that sort of thing. It doesn't take, especially a dancer, it takes somebody who is a good editor. Um, I uh, imagine some in the audience might be interested too, in the case of an author-illustrator, uh, does the relationship become a threesome, a trio, when the art director gets involved, or is that, uh, do you keep it two separate processes? Um, different publishing companies work in different ways, and at Harper, um, the editor is primarily involved with the illustrator, but the designer comes in most often after the art is done, at least certainly in Lillian's case, sometimes um, earlier with a dummy, uh, depending on the illustrator, we'll ask the designer to look at the dummy and help us out, but it's primarily just the editor. Mm -hmm. Honey, I, I've always felt very fortunate in being a, a Harper author-illustrator in that they don't have 
a, an art editor or an art director who says, this is the way a book should look. Uh, the only people that ever seem to, to really get in the way at all, and then we override them very quickly, <laughs> is the copy editors who will say, uh, the sky is pink in this illustration, but it's green in the next. Why? <laughs> or don't you want to change it? And um, at Harper, you just say, no, that's the way I want it. Whereas <laughs> at various other publishers, when I've done illustrations, the uh, art director will say, I don't like purple trees. Well, I like purple trees. What can I do? Uh, I have to change them. The purple trees become brown trees, and I don't like them because the art director didn't like them. So the stamp that the Harper Books has is, it really isn't a stamp. It's, it's that every artist is pretty much free to do what he or she wants. Whereas with other publishing houses, I find that they're, the art director has too much of a say, uh, and the books become uh, all, they, they look pretty much alike. Uh, let's see. I guess Green Willow and Green Willow isn't nobody here today <laughs> from Green Willow. They also have a very, very free and informal way of you do your art and that's it. I mean, nobody's going to, you like green trees? Okay, you like green trees. You like them yellow? All right. That's, you know, the, the feeling is one of trust. They wouldn't choose you to do the book if they didn't trust you to do the job that they thought you could do. Whereas in some publishers, you get this business of, they really, why do they take you? I mean, they know you like purple trees. Why are they trying to make you do red trees when they know you <laughs> like purple trees? Well said. Um, unless um, there are some questions in the audience that are very specifically geared to what Lillian and Sally have been talking about, uh, I thought we could move on to our next, uh, in this case, trio. Um, but I will pause in, in case there was any remark that you wanted to follow up on very quickly instead of waiting to the end of all the presentations. No? <laughs> well, fine. Um, our uh, next author is Norma Fox-Mazur, and she comes with two editors her uh, paperback editor and hardback uh, editor. She uh, began her career 18 years ago with her first book, I, Trissy, that was published at Delacorte. And uh, she says, uh, happily, the book is still in print and she's still getting letters from readers about it. So it obviously uh, got the career off to a flying start. Altogether now, she's published 16 novels, two of them co-authored with her husband, Harry Mazur, two short story collections, and a collection of women's poetry waltzing on water that she must have a spawn spot for. She hoped that we could mention it tonight. <laughs> uh, one of the novels, The Taking of Terry Muller, uh, came out as an original paperback with Avon, and after it was published, um, David Ruther of Morrow uh, bought the hardcover rights, 
And so um, Norma thinks that this was the first instance in children's books where the usual order of hardcover first and then paperback was reversed. Um, she says the same pattern was repeated for her next book, Downtown, and then when still the following one, After the Rain, came along, David and Ellen contracted for it jointly. So they really are a trio now. Uh, David has been editor-of-chief of Morrow Junior Books for nine years, and before that he was senior editor of Four Winds, an editor in the Macmillan Children's Book Department, and he broke into children's books, or, uh, first came into the field as assistant director of the Children's Book Council. So he's had a lot of um, varied publishing experience. In addition, he's one of the editors who also has authored uh, books himself, a number of sports books for Simon & Schuster, Warner, and Houghton Mifflin. And he's edited a half dozen anthologies for adults in the armchair library. So he says he can understand the concerns of authors as they uh, sometimes agonize during the process of bringing a book to life. Uh, Ellen Krieger, the editor at Avon Books, has been there five years. Uh, previous to that, she was subsidiary rights manager in the Harper Junior Books uh, group for 10 years. And way in the distant past, she says, uh, sh she did time, sounds a little <laughs> ominous, um, at Doubleday and Dell. Uh, back when they were two separate places. <laughs> so with that, um, our trio can decide which one will go first. Uh, I guess I'm chosen. Um, we all feel like we should burst into song every time we're called a trio here. <laughs> I was going to give you a brief history of how we came to be a trio, but actually Connie did that and uh, very accurately. David and I actually worked on a book together uh, many years ago when he was at Scholastic. And um, I think we immediately developed a, a very good rapport, working rapport. And then um, when Gene Fywell was um, trying to build the paperback line at Avon, um, she was interested in my doing a book for her. And I was frankly very worried about it because at that point and at that time, at least my concept and I think a lot of people's concept was that paperback was not quite as, it certainly wasn't as classy as hardcover publishing, and um, there was even something a little disreputable <laughs> about it. And so I really was, I, I hesitated a lot before I went to Jean. I was very happy that I did. Uh, we had a wonderful relationship, and then when David did buy the book, I just felt that I was in pig heaven, because I'd had uh, original paperback publishing, and then I had my hardcover as well, which I was really thrilled with. And um, you heard Connie tell you then, the sequence then was that David uh, asked to see my next book in manuscript, and um, we worked out today that then that was a joint contract, and then we've gone on like that. Now I wanted to talk just for a minute about, um, or a few minutes, about what I want as a writer from my editors in this case. Um, for me, writing a novel is very much a process and there are a lot of steps in the process, and there's a lot of the process that David and Ellen, happily for them, don't see, which has to do with 
the development of the idea, getting the first draft out on paper, which is usually quite horrible, and the only person I trust to read it is Harry, my husband, who, who was truly my very first reader. And when I do send the manuscript in, I'm under, um, I can't say, as Tanya was saying, that this is the very best I can do. I have the delusion that it's perfect and wonderful. But some part of me knows, because of past experience, that it truly isn't. I just think it is at this point, and I think that there's not possibly anything else I can do with it. And then the, um, probably the separation from it is very helpful, and um, then the editor's comments come in, and I look at the book in an entirely new way, and of course I realize that it's really terrible that I sent in this manuscript, and it has to be completely rewritten, and that, you know, and sometimes I'm really filled with horror at what I've let them see. So there's that whole process. Now, in the process, I think that um, I often lose sight of the forest for the trees. And for me, uh, what a good editor does, what good editors do, <laughs> um, and what I'm looking for um, is kind of a super reader, um, somebody who will tend to see the larger picture, somebody who's very much in sympathy with what I'm trying to do, which is something that you can't pin down in any kind of objective way. That's just something that's either there or isn't, and it's not there, and I do feel I have it with these two editors. And um, something that seems to be uh, extremely helpful to me, I find, is that very often the editor will pinpoint for me or will talk about or bring out uh, an idea in the book which really is there, but which I haven't truly articulated or focused on, and it becomes a way of shaping the book on whatever the next go-around is. So the editor has quite a complex job, far beyond, I think, the line editing, which I think is, I mean, I think the, li the, the stuff that I get to do that's line editing, which comes way, way, way down at the end of the line, maybe after we've gone back and forth three or four times, is just a piece of cake. That's just fun stuff. That's like do you really want the sentence to go this long? Is this the word you truly want to use? And, and things like that. And that's just fun. And I don't know how it is for them. Maybe it's drudgery for them. But um, I think that, and that's important. That's really important. But it's much more of a surface kind of thing. The really, the harder things are done much earlier in the book and have to do, and have to do with the development of the idea and I think the working out of scenes. And I, and I think David will talk about, we were, we, We'll talk a little bit about After the Rain and where I kind of kept balking as a writer, not deliberately, but unconsciously at a certain scene that I really needed to write because it was painful for me to write it. And so it was with the, the help of the editors that I was able to get past a certain point for me. I think that's all I want to say right now. I'll give David and Ellen a chance. Um, you should probably go first. You did a 12-month lead time. <laughs> um, First of all, I think for me the most important uh, aspect of working with an author is that I, I don't tend to work with the same author, with all authors the same way. Different authors want something different from, from me, and I try to respond to what it is that will make their book the best book that they can make it. Um, There's some authors that ask me to do very heavy line editing, or they seem to respond very uh, well to that and other authors who really do not respond well to that, and it just would be inappropriate. And there's some authors that I've worked with that I feel I, I just can't help. Either I'm completely out of sync with what it is that they're trying to do, 
and by the time I've made my suggestions or my comments or queries, they feel that they're really taking the book in a very different direction, and, and we generally don't continue to work together. But the authors I have worked with uh, over the years, we establish a relationship, and uh, it becomes very comfortable, after, especially after the first uh, book, and the second book it's easier, and the third one easier yet. Uh, Norma and I have now worked together for 10 years on four books, and uh, it doesn't mean the process is always easy, but I know now what it is that she feels will be truly helpful to her. And you've taught me a great deal about being an editor by the questions you've asked me as much as the questions I've asked you. And, and in particular, at one point, I was making suggestions to Norma, and you suggested to me back that you thought it would be more helpful if I asked you questions rather than made statements about my responses. And I'd never really thought about it that way. And so from then on, I've always phrased my letters to you as a series of questions. Why did you do this? And why did you not do that? And that seems to work very well for both of us. In particular, in the incident you mentioned in After the Rain, uh, it was a scene that I felt was the emotional climax of that novel when Izzy, the grandfather, asks his granddaughter, is he going to die? And in the original draft, after that question, it was, it, uh, there's a line space, and then it began again the next morning. And I very much wanted to know what she was going to say. I didn't know what she was going to say, but I, I certainly wanted to know. And I asked Norma to, to see if she could uh, fill out that scene. And uh, in fact, the second draft came back without that scene at all. Um, <laughs> and we had lunch together earlier today, and Norma remembered some things about that editing that I had forgotten completely, and I remembered some things that she had forgotten, so I went back and reread the file, and it, you indeed left that scene out completely, and then I really wanted to know what was going <laughs> to happen. And I asked you again a third time, asking in a slightly different way, realizing that it must be very difficult to write that if indeed it was uh, uh, not there the second time, and the third time it came through, and it was extraordinary, and it was indeed what I had hoped it would be, and I think made a, a, a real impact on everybody who's read the book. Um, one last thing I'd like to say is that for me, the book is fundamentally always first and last the author's book. And it takes tremendous, uh, I think, humility to say as an editor that I'm there working primarily as a servant to the author. Um, and authors, I think, work generally in isolation. They're working uh, with a book, which is often very personal to them. And it's very difficult not to start making categorical statements about it and yet to try to see yourself as being the servant to the author and the book. Uh, but it is always the author's decision. Whatever I suggest, whatever questions I ask, the final decision is always the author's. And if I don't like that decision, then that's something that I just live with because uh, it's not my name on the book. Uh, my name is nowhere in the book unless the author winds up putting it there. And uh, the author is ultimately responsible for everything that's there. And, and you constantly, as an editor, have to keep not writing the author's book for them. It's their book. And all you can do is make suggestions or ask questions. I remember early on in my editorial career, I was faced with that, something I really, you know, what do you do when you come up with something that you really disagree strongly on? I've, Clearly, this shouldn't happen in anything major, because if it's something you're really not going to be comfortable publishing a book with, uh, this is something you should work out before you actually, you know, contract to publish the book. And 
as David said, it's the author's name on, on the book. Uh, the person I asked, what do I do with this, said, remember, very seldom is a review going to say, this book was badly edited. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it does happen, but it is generally, the review is going to focus on the author. The author you know, has to have the final decision. I sort of came late into editing, um, as you could probably tell by my checkered career. Um, I started out at Doubleday in the mid-60s, which in a, working in the permissions department at a time when Doubleday was a very editorially oriented house. I mean, there was a real sense that editors were one step from God and that only editors could communicate directly to authors and that if you had not been born an editor, you clearly were never going to be an editor. And, <laughs> you know, Maxwell Perkins did not speak to me in a vision, and I really thought that um, it took me a long time before I realized not only this is what I wanted to do, but this was something I could do. And I agree with what David is, has, has said. It's, you are a servant to the author, a servant to the book. Um, in my previous job at Harper selling rights, you do find yourselves often in an adversarial position with the people that you are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. You're trying to get something from them, and they're trying to get something from you for as little money as possible. Um, it was a wonderful switch to get into the editorial end of it. Where you're on the same side as the people you're working with. You have a common goal. You both want the book to be the best book it possibly, the author can possibly make it. Um, it, was, it, it, was, it was a good career change for me. Um, I am, which is a very, this is an unfashionable thing for women in the late 1980s to admit, I am in many ways a nurturer. I like to knit sweaters for people and bake cookies for people and, and do for the people I care about. And there's a lot of that in editing. And it's, it's one of the things that makes the editorial, the editor-author relationship uh, such a, a fundamental one. I mean, it is basically, it, that is the relationship, um, it is obviously the author's primary relationship with uh, his or her publishing house is the relationship with the editor. Um, I think it's easier to respond to questions than to... Well, uh, a question <laughs> occurs to me now, at, uh, perhaps a little more specific, uh, on how the three of you work together. Do, uh, do the two editors sometimes consult about, say, this difficult scene that, uh, after the rain and um, where uh, David felt there was more to explore? Uh, do the three of you meet together, or do, uh, does one editor ask another? Do you feel the, the same way about this? Um, basically how we work, and it's a, this is a, if not unique, at least unusual relationship. There are a lot of uh, contract, you know, publishing relationships now where um, a hardcover and paperback house buy a book together, but generally speaking, it's a hard house, hardcover house that has its own paperback um, division or a paperback house that's doing its own hardcovers and there's usually one editor responsible for the for the book in our case it is two separate editorial departments and two se separate editorial inputs i don't know if this means you know norma is twice cursed or twice blessed uh, to get the opinions of two editors uh, basically the way david and i work um, is we each obviously read the manuscript carefully, compile copious notes, our thoughts, you know, articulate them, and then we sit down together and go over them. Uh, we've never really had a situation where there was something one of us felt very strongly about that the other didn't. Obviously, if we did, that's, again, one of the situations where Norma would, uh, it would we would probably present both of these 
thoughts to Norman to see how she felt about it. But generally, we consolidate our thoughts into one editorial letter for Norma. She certainly doesn't get you know, two separate letters that would send her in several directions. So that's sort of how we work. Have I left anything vital out? No. Uh, we also work together with another author, Jim Howe, where we've uh, worked in the same way, which is uh, the two of us consult, and then one letter goes out, often from me, but sometimes from, from Alan. Uh, we just thought it was most important that uh, the author get one letter and be at least one set of suggestions rather than have the book pulled between two different uh, points of view. And uh, as Ellen has said, there's never been an issue that we couldn't negotiate between ourselves. And if there was something uh, that, that uh, we felt where there might be two different opinions, we've given both to the author and obviously let the author choose. Yes, well, that uh, answer, does anyone in the, yes, I see a hand there. Um, I'll, I'll repeat the questions uh, to make sure those in the back row can hear them too. Uh, the question was, what is the age group um, of, well, we'll say after the rain and, and uh, Norma's other books? Well, and uh, The books we've worked on with Norma are young adult novels, but the books that Ellen and I have worked on with Jim Howe are picture books where he is the author and there's a separate illustrator. I imagine in one sense um, this process is not so different from edit editors conferring in a single department. Of course, there there is a, uh, a head who's pulling uh, the different thoughts together, and, and um, in that sense, it would be a little different with two separate departments, but um, I think that uh, describes it very well. Any, uh, any further questions in the audience that, uh, you know, I see a hand there. Um, this, the questioner is not uh, familiar with this particular novel and, and uh, thought of a quick uh, summary or of the subject matter uh, would be of interest to her and others in the audience. Would you like to sum up the plot just in a no, sentence? No, actually <laughs> I wouldn't. It's my least favorite thing to do in the world, but my editor insists that I do it. I will do it. I'm sorry. I'm just being ungracious. It's um, a story about um, a girl's relationship to her grandfather who is dying of asbestosis. Um, I'll, I'll just give you a very brief history. Um, also, I should say the relationship is a very prickly relationship. The man is very difficult, and uh, he's been very removed from the family. He falls down one day, and uh, he's not hospitalized with this, but he need, and he's a very independent man, and he walks. He's in his 80s and the family feels that uh, he needs somebody to be with him in case he ever falls or you know he gets very sick or whatever and the daughter Rachel the teenage girl is called upon to do this so essentially you have two people thrown together who don't know each other I mean they're in the same family but they're like strangers and they neither one wants to be in the situation um, I base the um, death of the grandfather on my own father's death and this had happened to my father he had fallen down in the street my mother was with him wasn't alone, but the details of the illness and of the death came from my father's death, and it made it a very difficult book for me to write. Um, that was that was one level of difficulty, which has nothing to do with the plot, actually. Um, 
And so I think that's probably why I had trouble doing that particular scene. Um, that it was the death about. scene then that was the... Uh, no, not actually the death scene, but it was a prior scene in which he asked the granddaughter if he's dying, because nobody has said it. Nobody has actually said it. I mean, people know except the person involved is being told something else. It's a particular, it's a kind of a death where actually what happens is you're strangling to death, finally, you're, you're uh, the um, tumor in the lungs is just growing and choking out the air more and more, but you don't actually experience pain. You just become weaker and weaker, and, and in, in fact, the, the death itself, at the moment of death, you're strangled to death. That would be difficult. Uh, another question. This was a question about uh, uh, the extent of artwork with young adult novels. Is it jacket only? Um, or any interior art, and uh, is an art director involved? Uh, Normous novels are not illustrated except for the jacket, and we have meetings between the art director in the hardcover division and the art director in the paperback division, and we will jointly do a jacket together with an artist that's been very effective on some of Norma's previous books, but who actually would be more expensive than we would be able to afford in hardcover, so we are able jointly to afford this, this one artist. Uh, in the case of the picture book that Avon and Morrow collaborate on, uh, the hardcover art director works closely with the uh, artist. Thank you, David. Um, it, does that uh, wrap your description up? It certainly seems to cover it very clearly. Well, let's move on to our third pair of the evening. Our author is uh, Todd Strasser, and he published his first book, which uh, is Angel Dust Blues, in 1978. And he wrote that um, he began working on this in college and, and worked on it intermittently for a number of years afterwards. And after 10 rejections, you said, it was uh, bought by Ferdinand Monjo of uh, Coward McCann, and, um, uh, and he credits uh, editor Monjo with being a big uh, influence on his career, but there was a sad postscript to this because uh, he was ill at the time, I guess, and he said never did have a chance to read uh, the final draft, which was I'm sure, great uh, sorrow. Since then, uh, Todd has published a number of other YA novels, uh, including one, The Accident, that he says he's um, uh, working on now and developing a screenplay for an after-school special on um, ABC television. And his latest book is uh, Beyond the Reef. first uh, novel, Angel Dust Blues, and then later uh, offered uh, a contract with both the hardcover and the softcover rights combined, uh, which um, 
uh, obviously was pleasing, and, and uh, Todd has found a home on the Delacorte list ever since. He uh, wound up his letter saying that actually he met his present uh, editor, Olga, on the dance floor of <laughs> an ALA convention. And um, uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about your dance steps together. <laughs> yeah, talking about Ferdinand Manjo for a second. Um, when I wrote Angel Dust Blues, or what would eventually become Angel Dust Blues, it was in the 1970s, and I didn't know about YA literature, and I thought, well, how am I going to make a book which is essentially about some teenagers in Long Island uh, who get in trouble with drugs become interesting to the greater reading population? And so I got a magazine called Writer's Digest, and I uh, read an issue. And at the time, the, the best-selling subjects uh, for this particular issue that I read were, were cocaine and Nazism. <laughs> I came up with a plot where a Nazi <laughs> steals a submarine at the end of World War II and sails his submarine to Columbia, South America, <laughs> where he then becomes a cocaine smuggler smuggling cocaine in his submarine <laughs> to Roslyn Heights, Long Island. <laughs> Which is, well, you can get there if you go down the Roslyn in Bay, Manhasset Bay, you can get close. Um, I made him the uncle of one of the characters in the book. The book was rejected by 10 publishers. And then Ferdinand Manjo called me after he spoke to my agent, and said, Todd, would you like to have lunch? And uh, you know, I do a lot of speaking at schools all over the country. And one thing I tell the kids always is, you may not get rich, but you're always well-fed when you're a writer. We had a great meal tonight. Thank you, Penn, for that <laughs> meal, whoever was paying for it. Um, Ferdinand took me to lunch, and he was a very distinguished man, long silver gray hair, gold wire rim glasses, smoked cigarettes on a gold cigarette holder. Uh, ordered vodka gimlets and a red caviar omelet. <laughs> and uh, when we started to talk, he was so gentlemanly about this. He said, Todd, would you consider rewriting this book? I said, well, sure, you know. And I said, what, what would you like me to, to do? And he said, well, I thought maybe you'd take the movies out of it. <laughs> I said, the movies? What do you mean? He said, well, you could start with that Nazi who smuggles cocaine. <laughs> and then he went on to tell me one of the great lessons that I've had in my writing career, which is that you have to write about what you know, and that I knew something about these teenagers on Long Island getting in trouble with drugs, and that I obviously knew nothing about Nazis who smuggle cocaine <laughs> in submarines from South America. And uh, that was really one of the great lessons. Uh, Ferdinand Manjo's assistant was named Jim Bruce, and he went to Dell. And uh, I think that he was influential in getting my book bought by Dell for paperback, The Angel Dust Blues. And so I went over to Dell, and they were, I think, the first publisher to have this hard, soft deal, where they could pay you not only for your hard cover, but your soft cover at the same time, and where you earned royalties. Instead of splitting them with the hardcover house, you got your full 8 or 10% which really was what enabled me, was one of the things certainly that enabled me to, to make a living as a writer uh, back before I had two children. Um, 
I knew about Olga back then. I, I'd seen her in the offices. But it's true that I didn't really, I, think of, I really do think of our relationship sort of uh, like a romance. I mean, we spied each other across the <laughs> dance floor in Philadelphia at an ALA, and we danced. And from that moment on, I knew that I wanted her to be my editor. <laughs> and unfortunately, it really did play itself out like a good romance should, which is that there were a lot of stumbling blocks, one being Jim, of course. Uh, Jim Bruce stayed. I was already married to Jim, yeah. Uh, Jim, Jim stayed, and uh, I worked with him on four or five books, and uh, he was a wonderful editor. And then he left. And I didn't know how to go about asking for an editor. How do you ask for all guys? I didn't know. I, I figured they just assign her to me. Well, they didn't. They assigned somebody else to me. Someone who was an extremely bright person, uh, who has done fabulously well in the business since, but at the time was just starting out as an editor. And she took a book of mine, and she went home. And I, I've always felt badly about this. She spent the entire weekend rewriting my book. <laughs> And she gave me this manuscript where she had crossed out hundreds and hundreds of sentences and paragraphs and rewritten them. And I, I was appalled. I had never had anybody write on a manuscript before. Haven't since either. Fortunately, she wrote in a very soft pencil. <laughs> and I erased 95% of what she wrote. And um, it was a good learning experience for her and me, I guess. I learned to keep a lot of erasers at home. And uh, I did keep about 5% because it was good stuff. Uh, she left. Now I knew I wanted Olga. Olga had to be mine. <laughs> but then I got editor number three. Uh, where is she? Editor number three uh, was actually a personal friend of mine. And she was a very good editor, but she was only a part-timer. And this became a real problem. Because when you have a part-time editor, they can edit your work, but they can't represent you. And that uh, in, in the publishing house. And what you learn is that all these editors are sort of competing for their writers. And at sales conference, uh, they get up and they talk about their writers. Well, if your editor is a part-timer and she doesn't know the salesman that well, you don't have as much clout. Uh, and you don't get as much publicity. And you don't, you're not connected as well to the publicity department when uh, your editor is part-time there. Uh, she also left after a while, and I went on to editor number four. Uh, with editor number four, I started to work on a book called The Accident, and it was about a drunk driving accident. And the problem is, I wanted to write about drunk driving very badly, but if you have a story where the kids get in the car, get drunk, drive, have an accident, it's no story. Well, editor number four didn't recognize that, and she uh, not only paid me for it, but she gave me the balance of my uh, payment, I guess uh, the balance of my advance. She accepted the novel, and it was completely unacceptable to everybody else in the publishing house. Uh, but we left it, and we started to work on another novel. They thought that maybe if I had some time away from it, it would get better. It would grow somehow. Uh, and then she left and left me in, in the middle of two novels, The Accident and a book called Wildlife. And when she left, I really did make a big stink. I said, I want Olga. I've waited long enough. <laughs> it's time. And I needed her at that time, too. And so Olga came into my life. 
And the first thing she did is she edited Wildlife, which was the third book in a series about a rock and roll band. And then we got to work on the accident. And Olga suggested to me that I make it a mystery. Because unless there was something mysterious about it, there was no real story. Okay, these kids get in the car, they, they crash. So he turns it into a mystery where we don't know who the actual driver is and where we want boy A to be the actual driver when in fact it's boy B because boy A is someone we don't like and boy B is someone we do like. Um, about that time, Olga started to write me letters like this. which This is a short one. These are single-spaced editorial letters. I'd never gotten anything like this. I mean, this is a person who really spent some time with my books. This one is short. It's about two and a half pages, single-spaced, <laughs> about my book. And it's funny. I didn't mind it when Olga told me what to do at times because for two reasons. One is I have blind spots. I guess every writer does. Another is that in order to make a living as a writer, and that's something I spend a lot of time thinking about, you can't take the time that you'd like to take. I can't write a book, put it away for a year, and let it sit there while I get a fresh view on it. So I come back a year later and I read it and I can see all my mistakes. So I need Olga to read it and tell me what my mistakes are. So I trust her enough, I guess, so that when she tells me something, I pretty much believe it most of the time. Anyway, we finished the accident. And it was my first mystery, and it was nominated for an Edgar. And I really pretty much attribute all that to Olga. Uh, we decided to do another mystery. This one would be called Chop Shop, about some boys involved in stealing cars. I started to do it, and I really wasn't interested. Somewhere along the line, uh, I read a story about a guy named Mel Fisher who discovered a ship called the Atoka, a Spanish galleon, in, uh, off the coast of Key West, Florida. It took him 17 years to find this galleon uh, and to get the gold and the silver out of it. I was enthralled with this story. One day I called Olga on the phone and I said, Olga, I know I'm supposed to do, be doing sh chop shop, but would you mind if I did a book about treasure hunting instead? Now this, you know, they had done a, I had a contract for chop shop. I had been paid in advance for chop shop. They must figure out what they think chop shop can sell in order to pay for the advance. And here I am saying, I don't want to do that book at all. I want to do a completely different book. I told Olga about a scene. Well, I had one scene in the Florida Keys. One night in January, uh, it was about 50 degrees, which is frigid for the Florida Keys. And I walked out of my motel. I was there fishing. And this whole bridge, an old railroad bridge, was completely lit with fires and Coleman lanterns. And there were people all along the bridge with what looked like big white kites. Except instead of sending the kites in the air, they were dropping them over the bridge into the water. And when they pull the kites up, you'd have this big mass of seaweed and flopping fish and eels and all kinds of things in this, in this net. And they dump it out into the light by the uh, bridge and it was filled also with shrimp. And four or five people would sit around the shrimp and, and with these eels slivering out and, and fish flopping all over the place. They would sit around and they would quickly pick out all the shrimp and separate the large ones from the small ones. And it was such a fantastic scene to me at night with these fires going, these people working all night long, their hands becoming cut and, and, and on the, the shrimp uh, shells. And I told Olga about that scene over the phone and she said, okay, do it. And it 
I guess, you know, I'm thinking about that, not only that, but she got so interested in it that when Mel Fisher's treasure, here are some gold bars and gold coins that he found, was auctioned at the Atoka, I mean, at, the, at Christie's, Olga went to the auction <laughs> and, and, uh, and got this book with all the, the uh, pictures and everything. And I mean, she was, it wasn't just a book to Olga. It wasn't just a book to me. It was an adventure. <coughs> Olga began to, I don't know if I should tell people this, but Mel Fisher still sells shares in his expeditions. <laughs> and Olga <laughs> began to try to sell shares to the pub people in the publishing house. I mean, we together, you know, it really was more than just a book. It was something we shared, a whole experience. I went back down to Key West, Florida. I did some more uh, fishing and some more research. And uh, I come back and tell Olga about what had happened. And uh, it's that kind of experience that, to me, is what can be so great about an editor, where they really it share you in your enthusiasm and, and work together with you, not just because it's a book, but because it's it's a whole experience. Oh, and one other thing she did. I decided this would be my first book, or hopefully my first book with illustrations. There's so many unusual things that I talk about in the book that were so hard for me to describe. Um, I called Olga one day and I said, hey, Olga, how about illustrations? I thought she was going to make me pay for them. <laughs> she said, okay. She let me bring in my own illustrator. Of course, I had to, this illustrator had to prove to Olga that she was capable. And then I was able to, to show the things I couldn't show, like, like what the actual diving ship looks like and how it blows the sand off the bottom so that you can find the, the gold which rests on bedrock and what these gold bars look like because there's nothing like what uh, we have in Fort Knox. And so I just, right now I, I'm feeling very good about my editor uh, <laughs> because this book has just come out and, uh, and it just could not have been this way if, if Olga had not uh, been as enthusiastic as she was. This is a good point, I think, for me to give some of uh, Olga's background, how she came to this uh, yen for adventure <laughs> and the gold shares. Uh, her official title is executive editor of Delacorte's Books for Young Readers. And previously, uh, to coming to Delacorte, she has had stints with several of our most well-known publishing companies, um, including Viking, Macmillan and Scribner's. And in addition to um, this busy editorial work, she has also found time to teach courses in editing and writing for children at Hofstra University and City University of New York. And she too is a published writer. And when she was bringing me up to date on all that she'd been doing, um, she had a hot news flash and that was that Walker has just um, bought her fifth book, uh, she says, on uh, tips from a New York editor on writing for children. <laughs> so, Olga, you have the stage. <laughs> I don't know anything that goes on. She didn't say she was a good dancer, though. You left something out. <laughs> I never thought I was, but Todd made me feel I was. Um, Todd and I have had this little discussion today, and, and there are a lot of things, apparently, well, one, the most important thing that there is in an author-editor relationship is communication. And tonight I found out he had his knee operated on, and he found out about this book. Um, I think Todd's story of his life, you know, in looking for an editor is an interesting one and an important one. And I guess I can say he's lucky he found an editor who seems to be fairly permanent, but who knows what might happen. 
Um, it frightens a, a lot of writers, and it should, when your editor leaves the house because you have lost your best advocate. Luckily, at Dell Delacorte, we, I don't know, we're pretty interchangeable. I don't mean that we're all the same, but it isn't that competitive an environment the way you would find it in adult houses where if I haven't signed up this author, then I don't want him, which does happen quite a bit. I met Todd was already established. He was already published. I had read his work. I mean, it was just natural that he continue, and that it didn't it didn't matter that I hadn't discovered him. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about jackets because um, it's a very important part. Someone had brought up the question of how involved the art director gets. It's almost as if people are afraid art directors are some kind of tyrants that come in and, you know, um, say do this and do that. We have a wonderful art director at Del Delacorte named Jerry Cunahan. We give him on the manuscript, we tell him briefly what the book is about. It's, this book is about drunk driving, there's an accident, a car goes off a cliff, we discuss some possible scenes with him, then we give him the manuscript. And we've marked the scenes very carefully so that the artist knows what color hair everybody has and what they're wearing and so on. And then the art director gives us a sketch which can look something like this. This was one sketch and then this is another one after we made some changes. And finally, the finished painting comes in and it goes to the author, the sketches go to the author, and the uh, finished painting goes, you know, is this okay, everything just the way it should be. And then we look at it very carefully, we go back to the manuscript, and we say, it's fine, and we're all set to print it. And then Todd goes, and he gives a copy of a bound galley with the cover, a jacket proof, to a librarian. I don't know who, who, who this is from, but this is someone who read his book and really liked it except she said, I want to mention one discrepancy. You wrote on page 122, he got out. The air was cold, crisp, and dry. He zipped up his jacket. On the cover, it looks like his jacket is unzipped. <laughs> <laughs> so Todd sends this to me and says, she's right. <laughs> All right, I tell our managing editor, Helene Steinhauer, we love to find these things out. Well, we're very interested in accuracy. <laughs> she writes a memo to the production manager, uh, manager. Please note that Todd wants to make the following change in the text. Zipped up, changes to pulled on. I know we're in blues. That's the last stage, but, you know. But Todd wants this done. Thanks very much. It was done. I have to agree with what David and Ellen were saying about the author-editor relationship in that it is the author's book and as long as we can make it the best book it can be, that's what it's all about as far as being an editor is concerned. Luckily, we do not get reviewed, though I did once have a book of mine that was badly edited and I have to say it was badly edited. I, I went overboard. I was younger. And I tried, I, tr I, I bought a book because I liked the way this writer wrote. And then after I got it, I saw she was very wordy. And so I you know, did a lot of cutting and it came out all choppy. 
And I learned, leave it alone, leave it alone, because a, a writer has a tone, and maybe he's wordy, and maybe he's not. But you can't, not all, all books should not read alike. This is not Time Magazine publishing. Each, <laughs> I mean, I know we're in Time Magazine, and it's what made Time Magazine a success, because everything reads the same. But a book is 200 pages, 400 pages. It is just too much to rewrite to make every book sound alike. And as I look around the room, nobody looks alike. Why should everybody sound alike? And I think I've run out. Well, I could go on for days. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I was going to um, ask at some point, maybe this would uh, uh, be a good moment, uh, of all our pairs this evening, uh, how the writers and the editors too feel um, about the connections that a writer has with publisher and editor and which the writer feels is most important to keep uh, unbroken, whether uh, when an editor leaves a company, whether the writer feels it's more important to preserve this editorial connection or more important to stay with the company who after all is um, possibly continuing to sell some of the books already written. Um, maybe we should start with our first uh, uh, pair, Lillian, Sally. Well, I feel very strongly that I would stay with the company. Uh, in fact, I have had many editors at Harper, and uh, Harper is just home to me. First of all, I think that the Harper um, attitude towards books is not like other publishers. I think uh, up until now, uh, Harper has been just as interested in keeping the backlist alive as in publishing new books. And this is terribly important to me because I live on my royalties. I'm not interested in big advances. Uh, I'm I just, a big advance means nothing to me. It just means more money that I have to pay in taxes. I'm just interested in the fact that books that I wrote 20, or that I illustrated 25, 30 years ago are still in print and still selling. And this, I don't think, is true of too many other houses. Now, whether this will continue or not, I don't know. I mean, Murdoch did buy Harper, and uh, things are changing there. But I hope that uh, it will continue to be a house that keeps its backlist going. Um, I see that especially in uh, books where I have done uh, series for other publishers who are not as interested in keeping the backlist going. It's very important to me uh, to stay with a company that believes in the backlist. Sally, I don't know if you know any more about it than I do at the moment. <laughs> um, I just, I think it's important to say that every publisher wants a backlist that, that keeps on selling. I, that's, that's how you survive in publishing. That's how a publishing house makes its money. So I don't think Harper is alone in wanting to keep its backlist alive. That's, that's how you survive. I yes, but I have had books with Harper 
that, as I say, date back 30 years that maybe don't sell more than 15 or 20 copies and that keep on going. And I have had books with other publishers where they will sell several thousand and where I will get a letter saying, your book is you know, being remaindered. Would you like to buy up the, the remaining copies? And uh, that just isn't so with Harper. I mean, Harper will keep a book going for, you know, forever, forever and ever. You finished with, yeah. May I say something? I don't think any publisher can afford to keep a book in print that's selling 15 or 20 a year. I'm here to tell you it's true. I mean, at the it's publishers, <laughs> even in the old days, that was pretty low. It was, you know, it was a, a few hundred a year had to sell. Now, of course, Adele, it's, a, it's many more than a few hundred a year. In the old days, there were different tax laws where you could keep your inventory in the warehouse forever and it didn't cost you anything. But now that space in the warehouse has become very expensive. And there's some kind of tax thing about inventory, which means if you keep it in the warehouse, you pay taxes on it and so on. It's become a very prohibitive thing for publishers to do. And of course, there are a few authors, and maybe you fall in that group, who are so beloved and so popular that no publisher wants to put them out of print. But for the majority, unfortunately, they are going out of print sooner than they used to. It's sooner than uh, used to be, Olga, but I guess uh, there is a uh, dif difference here between the children's book writer and the adult uh, book um, on backlist concerns. You don't believe so? Well, there's still a difference, thank goodness. We don't have to tell yeah. them the big numbers, the adult people. I mean, they go out of print in a month, some of them. The paperback writers. Right, well, that was yeah. what I meant. As, as far as getting back to this uh, question of, of needing to think over which connection is more important. I think perhaps that's more of a uh, factor for children's book writers to think about than it is for adult book oh writers. Oh yeah, that's, yeah. that's the beauty of being in children's books, is that your book has a longer life. Mm -hmm. And even if it does go out of print, it will have lived longer. But on to Norma, do you have any thoughts that Well, I, I think shared? it's kind of a chicken and egg question for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like very much the publishing that I get at Morrow, but it's inevitably tied up for me with the fact that David is the editor there. I don't know how much of it, I don't know what it would be if David left. So I really don't know. I think it, you just have to decide. I mean, I did my early books with Dell, and they're still in print there. And uh, I've published with Scholastic. I think very obviously the relationship to the editor is really important. I would not want to publish and deal with an editor that I didn't get along with and that you know and that's a very complex thing and so it's, it's really a hard thing to say you probably have to decide in each case when the time comes yeah uh, I see a hand green sweater there <laughs> or and the author uh, the question is in the children's book field um, what role does the author's agent play in the author-editor um, relationship? Uh, how important is it, and uh, what does he or she do? Um, who would like to speak to that? Um, let's see. Do we, uh, 
Okay, I'll speak to it for a second yes, since I just yeah. fired my agent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that for any area of writing now, especially if you're beginning, an, an agent is almost essential. I'm not sure how you can get published without an agent anymore. Um, the agent always does the dirty work for you and always talks about the things that if you had to talk about them with the publisher uh, might create some discomfort. Or it would be like Olga and I talking about alimony. Um, <laughs> so they, I think they serve a very important role. Now I say that, of course, I also said that I no longer have an agent. I think that once you've published a lot of books, uh, maybe it's not so important anymore. You have a relationship with a publishing house, or you know enough editors at different publishing houses, and you have a sense of what a book will fetch, and a sense of what should, should and should not be in a contract, that I just don't feel that, that for what I'm doing right now, I need to have someone to take 10% just to sell books that I know I can sell too. Um, I've never had an agent. I don't ever want an agent. And uh, I feel very strongly about it for myself. I don't think this is true for younger writers. I didn't need an agent when I started. When I started, I could stand down on the street uh, at a public phone and put my nickel in, because it was a nickel in those days, and ask for the top person at Harper and Row and get that top person without a secretary. She had no secretary. She didn't know what a secretary was. She was her own secretary. Uh, you can't do that anymore, so you do need an agent. And I, I would strongly advise any young writer to get one. But as far as I'm concerned, an agent is someone who gets in the way. An agent is somebody who will tell you something that the editor said, and when you get back to the editor, it's something that the editor never said. An agent is somebody who will delay in getting your work read because the agent will delay in sending it to the editor. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're pretty worthless to me. <laughs> now Not I worthless if, if you're beginning, unfortunately. Norma. Yes, now I have to speak. <laughs> because I do have an agent, and uh, I like having an agent very much. I like my agent very much. and. Um, for the reasons that Todd mentioned, for one thing, and uh, more than that, um, she's an advocate, I find. She reads my manuscripts. She also gets, she's another reader. She's, um, she's not a detailed reader like my editors, but she's an enthusiastic reader. And um, I have never found that she's gotten between me and Ellen or me and David um, at all. I mean, we just have direct contact. I, I just don't, we just don't have that kind of a formal relationship. I send my manuscript to my agent, at the same time I send a copy to Ellen and to David, and then they just call me directly. They'll also call her and tell her what they're thinking about. But there's always direct communication, so um, I have no complaints. I wouldn't be without an editor, uh, without an agent. I wouldn't be without an editor either. But <laughs> I definitely wouldn't be without an agent, um, primarily probably because I'm a coward about doing business. But all these other things come in too. Thank you. Well, uh, as often happens, uh, you ask a, qu a question about publishing of three people, and you get three different answers, but not quite three different ones. Uh, question in the front row. Yes, I was just going to say. Uh, <laughs> David, are you ready to start off? Sure. Generally, I'm very happy to negotiate the, the terms of a contract <coughs> with an agent. I find it much easier to talk about cash 
and, and advances royalties uh, with an agent than to talk directly to the author because inevitably discussions of money with authors will complicate your editorial relationship and there are realities to the financial side of publishing and people do share information at writers conferences or uh, where they hear that so and so is getting X from their company and they come and ask you can I have that and it's much easier to deal with an agent than to uh, complicate your relationship with the author. Most agents that I work with do not get into the middle of the editorial relationship. I, in fact, can't think of any right now. I have had some in the past, but none, none presently. Um, it, they would just simply make the, uh, the situation worse by playing a game of telephone where there are distortions. But uh, at this point, uh, all I talk to agents about are uh, financial terms, and they will send me things that I might not otherwise see from their new clients. Um, so I'm entirely happy with the agent relationship. Of course. Oh, we all do. Uh, that and, and that's, I think, a, a misunderstanding that uh, you have to have an agent in order to get seen. We, we do read manuscripts that come in uh, unsolicited, uh, and, and some of our best writers, in fact, uh, have I'll, come I'll in that just way. Uh, uh, repeat the question. I think yeah. maybe in the back row they sure. didn't hear that, David. That uh, the questioner wanted to know, but will he talk to or uh, negotiate with writers who don't have an agent? Yeah. And so, and then David went on to say yes. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I know very few houses that won't look at unsolicited manuscript. Uh, uh, yeah. Can I uh, say something? Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious. When an unsolicited manuscript comes into the house, who reads it? At tomorrow, you're talking, or yeah, yeah. Or any place. Okay, the editorial assistant reads the uh, manuscript, uh, and often that comes uh, also with manuscripts from agents where we haven't previously worked with that author. Yeah. Um, in our case, it's yeah. a woman who's been with us now for two years and has had previous experience for a year at the Horn Book and also a children's only bookstore. Uh, and I find that uh, those things that she thinks I ought to read are very much worth reading. I. I yes, agree with what, what, what David is saying. I know a lot of uh, new authors probably are concerned with what is probably fairly generally known, which is if you send in an unsolicited manuscript, it is going to be read, first read, by probably the person in the house with the least experience, the newest person, the new kid on the block. Um, in many ways, I think this works to an author's advantage. I think, if anything, an editorial assistant is more eager, more willing, uh, you know, we all, of course, are in this business because we think we're going to discover the next uh, great author. But I think the editorial assistant, who is very new, very you know, fresh, is more open to things. I think, if anything, I get things given to me to second read that I reject. I'm much more. Con I mean, there's much more of it going in that direction. I really am not that concerned that a great book is going to be. Um, not recognized, or the potential for a great book is going to be not recognized in editorial assistant. I think in some ways they're less jaded than the rest of us. It is inevitable. We've read a lot more. Um, we're more likely to say, I've read the story 5,000 times, because we have read a story 5,000 times that an editorial assistant wouldn't. I think, I think a new author is in very good hands um, being re read by the new kid on the block. And as David said, uh, the editorial assistant also reads a lot of the agented stuff. I don't first read very much, except I mean, obviously, I first read Norma. I first read authors I work with. But whether a book is agented or unsolicited, or you know, unsolicited, it it still is going to be first read by a junior member of the staff in most cases. 
and the uh, comments about agents that you wanted to add to that first question, and in addition to David's um, remark? You know, it's, e it's easy to speak second because I can just say, yeah, you're right, David. Um, <laughs> no, it is, I think it is easier in many ways to negotiate with an agent uh, because it does keep the editorial relationship um, unsullied by, you know, discussion of crass commercial things like advances and uh, royalties and terms like that. So it, it's nice to be able to separate the two. Olga, any comments? Agents. Um, I think an editor is neutral whether, you know, it doesn't matter whether you have an agent or don't have an agent, except, I, I should say at Delacorte, we do not read unsolicited manuscripts. Uh, we only read manuscripts, we read two kinds of manuscripts. Those that come in from an agent and those that are entered in our young adult novel contest. And those don't, those people do not require an agent. The reason we do not read unsolicited otherwise is that it's just too big a load. It's 5,000 a year and we, don't, we have a staff of nine people. Um, and I must say, a lot of that stuff that comes in is pure garbage. I mean, it's people who have not read the Writer's Digest or the Writer or anything. You know, they're sending us stories that they heard in kindergarten and, and we don't publish picture books and we get half of our manuscripts are picture book manuscripts. I mean, we're beginning to publish them, but we, we, for a long time we weren't. We publish very little nonfiction. We would get nonfiction proposals. It was for us a pretty big waste of time. Um, maybe we found two people in 10 years in the slush pile. Beca because the writer had not done his homework. And I think a lot of the problem is these amateur writers clog up the editor's desks. On the other hand, when you have a big, including for our contest, for which we get two or 300 manuscripts, it is very easy to get rid of 90% of them. Uh, we have a reader who looks at everything. She reads into each one. And again, even that contest, these people have not read the rules. I mean, I th they're trying to, f they think they're going to fool us. We're looking for contemporary and adult fiction. We get picture books, we get fantasies, we get historical novels. An amazing number goes right back. So at least the agent, we hope, knows what we're looking for, and that's why we will read what the agent sent us. Thanks, Olga. And Sally, uh, finally around to you. Um, just I agree with what's been said before. It's even easier to be the fourth person. Um, I just add that uh, it really does depend on the agent. I've worked with people I thought were good agents and bad agents, and the bad agents, uh, in my opinion, didn't help the author in the sense that they didn't do anything. The contract came back signed just as if the author did and their agent is skimming off 10, 15, 20%. And I don't know why the author needs that person. So someone like Lillian represents herself pretty well. I don't think she needs <laughs> <laughs> someone arguing for her. Um, and there are agents who may intervene in the editorial process, so it's not very helpful. But for the most part, it doesn't matter either way. Uh, I see a hand. Faye. Uh, this question is how, uh, what is the best procedure for an illustrator who wants to? Um, become an author illustrator uh,
to present her project to a publishing company, to editors. Um, uh, yes, Sally. Um, I would say to send in a, the manuscript, send in uh, sketches, a dummy preferably, of how you would plan, roughly plan out how you would illustrate the story and send some samples of your artwork, preferably color Xeroxes, I mean slides maybe, but um, not original work. Don't send your original artwork. And um, self-addressed stamped envelope, please. <laughs> David, uh, anything to add? Nothing there. Uh-huh. Um, that covers it pretty well. I wonder, you no, know, do picture books all yeah. right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not programmed to answer this question. Or <laughs> <laughs> we know. Way in the uh, back. Con Connie, that. I have something to say on that. Oh. I don't know if the other houses agree with me, but for an author illustrator you know, who wants to do text and do the pictures for the text, I think it's a very hard way to get in. Uh, you have to, I believe, establish yourself first as an illustrator, illustrating other people's stories, black and white novels. You know, you have to do children and animals and go the whole route. And then when you're established as an illustrator, people know who you are, they've seen your work, they know you're, you have a reputation, you've learned a lot of the technical niceties of publishing, things like gutters and margins and so on and how to do separations and all that stuff. That is about when you're ready to earn. I mean, I think a picture book has to be earned. It's a very expensive thing for a publisher to do. Last time I heard it, it's about $60,000 in production costs to do, a, to do a picture book. And to risk that, a uh, four-color one, and to risk that kind of money on an unknown person is very rare. Unless the book is truly brilliant and, you know, and we're always willing to hope that maybe this one will be. There was a young woman who walked into Viking years ago named Heidi something with a beautifully illustrated book and story and they published it. But that happens very, very rarely. Now to the back row. In other words, which um, department or department head uh, has the stronger say in whether uh, to take on a manuscript, to buy a manuscript or not, the uh, mar marketing director or the editorial director? Uh, <laughs> well, in, in terms of what's happening in the, in the publishing houses, you mean, yeah. Um, well, David, uh, do you want to <laughs> field that one? Sure. Uh, Morrow is very lucky in that the editorial departments are completely uh, autonomous and authorized to sign up any book that they want to sign up without getting the permission of anybody, sales, marketing, uh, subrights. Um, but I think that the marketing people are really uh, have just as much to offer uh, if the editorial types really feel that they want the response, um, the more people who have input, I think the better off the author is and the book will be. And so I try uh, with the books that we're doing to inform the marketing department uh, where there are some possible choices as to directions to go, markets to approach. Uh, I really want to hear what they have to say 
And uh, the same is true of the sales department, the sub-rights department, their special sales opportunities. Um, there's now a, a very large trade market in bookstores that didn't exist several years ago. Uh, it's very important that the marketing people uh, be able to voice their concerns so that uh, things can be done at a stage early enough so that uh, we can take advantage of, of an opportunity. Um, I, th I think it's an asset to have as strong a marketing department as you can have, but I think uh, I feel uh, that I prefer having the final say if it's a book I want to sign up that nobody else feels enthusiastic about, it's still up to me to, to make that decision or not. And uh, that's exactly the way I think it ought to be. It doesn't really break down into good guys and bad guys. Uh, well, let me say, I've worked at two other houses where there was, um, before a book could be signed up, uh, various people had to sign off on it. Uh, and the editor wound up being the lobbyist for a book, which isn't necessarily always a bad thing because uh, uh, you wind up really having to think through why am I doing this book instead of a kind of top of the head gut reaction. But in fact, for me, mostly what seems to uh, work best is that gut reaction. And you otherwise rationalize the things uh, tremendously. And uh, in, in houses where you have to get uh, other people's authority to proceed with a book you know in your heart you're going to do anyway, uh, you wind up getting people, a lot of log rolling goes on, and you wind up supporting their projects, and they support yours, and people create these fictions of uh, how many books uh, you think you're going to sell, which of course is a complete mystery. Uh, except with an author with a very long track record where you could actually extrapolate from that. But most of the time, uh, it's, it comes down to a gut reaction. And uh, so I, I really like getting the support, but without having to have that, uh, that stamp of approval, I think, which would make it uh, difficult. Ellen, then. Uh, paperback publishing has, I think, traditionally been more market-driven than, than hardcover children's publishing. And also, in the past at least, fairly narrowly focused in terms of the kind of books that we could sell. I mean, very much contemporary um, fiction, not much nonfiction, historical was a problem, uh, books set in exotic parts of the, the world were a problem. It was very much mainstream, middle American uh, contemporary fiction. Um, that's changing, and we're doing a broader, you know, broader kind of publishing. And I think because of that, we are getting input from the sales department more. I mean, if we're doing something that's sort of out of our normal publishing range, it's nice to get feedback from sales. Do you think this is going to be a problem? Uh, you know, can we sell this book? But, um, and I think you need a certain amount of give and take. Uh, obviously, it would be in one way wonderful if we could sit in our book-lined offices and publish beautiful books. But if there isn't a market for those beautiful books, um, we would soon go out of business. and. Like, I mean, I think Avon, as with Morrow, I cannot recall ever having been told I couldn't publish something I really wanted to publish because the sales department um, felt they couldn't sell it. In a, I mean, I think when you have a book that you think might be a problem, it's nice to get the support of sales so that you know how to uh, present it. But I have never felt that sales is really encroaching on um, you know, what I'm allowed to do. Thank you. Um, and down on my other side, any comments, uh, Sally or uh, Olga to add? Or? No, they haven't taken over yet. <laughs> um, question there, yes. In the
yeah, to um, sum up quickly, perhaps, they, uh, I, I just uh, like to how say much, yeah. that seems to me to have things backwards. I think the best books start with the author. And I, I know there have occasionally been books that I've suggested, or I had an idea and I suggested it to an author that I thought would uh, probably be able to make best use of it. But really, uh, those books have not, I felt, been as successful uh, and, and uh, reached the wider audience that a book that really is uh, uh, you know, passionately believed in by the author. Um, we, we certainly will give an author feedback on something uh, that we feel they might be moving in a direction which might not be popular, but, uh, but I really think the book starts with the author and, and ends with the author. Has anyone had an instance uh, when uh, a writer who's uh, published for the company for a long time um, and worked with the editor for a long time, wanted to uh, get together on a brainstorming session. I'd like to talk over some ideas or, you know, almost be asking for some uh, Well, input. Connie, that happens pretty much all the time. I mean, I mean, you, these famous lunches that we go to, <laughs> especially with a writer whom you don't know very well, I have a writer out in Seattle, and I didn't really know her. I had bought a book by her and then another one. And finally, she came to New York, and it was only when we were having lunch that I found out she was one of a pair of identical twins. And I began telling her all this great stuff I had read about twins having ESP and all that, and I, could, I did, really didn't pick up on it until much later. But I did say to her, you ought to write about being an identical twin. Well, it turns out she's a pair of twins that don't like each other. Well, I don't mean they don't like each other, but they have, ever since high school, have tried to differentiate themselves, and I think that is an interesting angle. But it was only through the lunch and getting to know about her and saying, hey, you should write about twins. This was a part of her life, but she didn't think about writing it. So the brainstorming is always there. Now, we didn't come up with Sweet Valley Twins. We've come up with the opposite. And I don't know how it's going to sell, et cetera, et cetera. The book isn't published yet. But there is always brainstorming, and we, you know, I think a lot of what an editor has to do today is try to take an idea and maybe make it more saleable. Like I, someone I know wanted to write a facts book, and I said, don't call it facts, call it trivia. That was about five years ago when trivia was the word, and she didn't want to call it trivia, and she called it facts. But I think that is a marketing thing that can help a writer's book a great deal. I'm not saying that the word trivia would have helped her book, but she was, she was really uh, shying away from going, quote, so commercial. And I think a writer should listen to an editor who's saying, hey, why not, as the title can do so much for selling a book, sometimes the title can do the whole job. Um, the Cat Ate My Gym Suit, I mean, that is one of the seminal titles of the 60s and 70s. You don't have to read that book. I mean, The Cat Ate My Gym Suit is just a great title. And all of Paula Danziger's titles are. And if a writer can just think of a good title, she's halfway there. <laughs> I, I see you. Oh, am I cutting someone off? Do you, Todd, you wanted to? Just one other thing about that. Uh, I feel a great deal of pressure to write what certain publishers want. I publish with other publishing houses other than uh, Delacorte with Olga. But uh, as a YA writer, the YA market has shrunk considerably in the last five years. Uh, um, you can't go into a bookstore and find my books, especially a B. Dalton's or a Walden. Uh, you might find one or two titles, but it's mostly Sweet Valley High and other series. And uh, every time I talk, you know what happens, I think, is once you've written a lot of books, 
you may, as I sometimes feel, I'm not exactly sure what I want to write next. I know I want to write, but I'm not, I'm not locked into anything. And then I get this, well, please try to write for juveniles because that's the market now. And they're just trying to do good for me, but if I don't feel like writing for juveniles, it's going to affect my career. Um, in the red, the, yeah, down. Uh, the question is, um, what is the market for uh, YA fiction in the fantasy uh, science fiction genre other than uh, realistic novels we've been talking about? Um, hmm. Ellen, yeah. This is purely the Avon experience and other houses have had a different experience. We have always had trouble marketing science fiction um, in the young adult area. There's no question it is one of the most popular categories for teenage readers. We have a, a young adult novel competition as well, and ours is for teenage writers. And a healthy percentage of the manuscripts we get from the kids are science fiction. It's clearly a popular category. But what we, what we found, and it's, and it's strictly a marketing uh, problem, that the kids who are reading science fiction are going to the science fiction department of bookstores to find their books. If you publish it under a young adult imprint and it ends up in the young adult section, it's not reaching its, its audience. Um, I know other houses have uh, you know, paperback fantasy and science fiction programs that, that work. It has not worked for us. And this is, again, a paperback perception. I think in the hardcover area where uh, the books are still sold, especially at the young adult level, more in school, for school, schools and libraries, the fact you, you're reaching the audience, uh, you don't have to reach directly the kids as much as the paperbacks. So it's less of a problem in hardcover, I think. I'd like to make a comment on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First off, the library market, which will buy most of the hardcover books, there is a great deal of prejudice against science fiction. We recently polled a bunch of teachers and librarians to see if they would like box sets in various areas, and nobody wanted a science fiction box set. Um, the adults really have a prejudice against it. I don't know why, but they do. So what we do when we do a science fiction book is we call it a fantasy, and then we can get recognition from the reviewers and so on in the library market. And then when it goes into paperback, we call it science fiction fantasy together. And I think you have better luck in the 10-year-old reading group rather than in the YA, because 10-year-olds, the fantasy for the 10-year-old well, there are many respectable writers who've long been writing for that age group, like Susan Cooper, Lloyd Alexander, and so on. So, and I think that's an age that likes to read them. The YA will go right into the adult books. Yeah. I, I like science fiction and fantasy myself a great deal. And the nice thing about it, though, is a lot of adults will read juvenile science fiction because they don't care. I mean, Andre Norton, I, she did a lot of books for Viking, and she did them for children. Um, but a lot of adults read all her children's books. It's a very nice crossover. So keep, it, keep your heroes and subject matter a little younger. And you know, keep them clean and so on. So the 10 to 14, <laughs> you can sell it as a 10 to 14 and call it a fantasy. And then you'll get your, your review coverage and so on 
even though you have spaceships and stuff, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> there's, an, there's, you know, there's another kind of science fiction that's sort of high-tech stuff with um, intergalactic battles and so on. That is pretty much strictly paperback. Well, I think we have time for one more question. All right, your hand went up first back there, and then we should wind our very fine program up. Um, well, we can do a quick rundown on this, perhaps. Uh, how important is a cover letter with an unsolicited manuscript? Depends entirely on the book. On nonfiction, obviously, it's crucial that I know as much about the book as possible. Uh, picture books, that would be impossible, so it's really, again, not that important. But the uh, uh, novel, I'd like to know as much as a synopsis of the novel to get a sense of it before reading. Um, you want to take that one? Um, basically, this is, I prefer a fairly short, straightforward covering letter that just tells me any relevant information um, about the, you know, your background um, and you know, a very brief description of what the book is about. Again, an unsolicited manuscript is going to be first read by the editorial assistant who is going to read as much of it as she needs to to see whether it's worth pursuing regardless of the cover letter because that's her job. And if she recommends it to me for a second read, I probably will just skim the covering letter and get right to the manuscript. I, I find clever and witty, it's hard to do. I, I do, since I happen to respond to uh, humor, if it's well done, I suppose it does put me in a good mood for the manuscript. But more often than not, it's, it seems like it's straight, it, a, a clever cover letter is trying too hard to impress me and often seems more unprofessional. I mean, I can't tell you how many letters, uh, cover letters talk about how much someone's grandchildren enjoyed um, having the story read to them. Now, you know, people's grandchildren tend to be, they're not fools. I mean, if they want Nintendo for Christmas, they're not going to tell grandma they hate her book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I just, you know, just cut to the chase. Uh, the manuscript should speak for, for itself. Yeah, I would just add to uh, a bit of advice is put your energy into the first page of your manuscript. Uh, if you're putting time into your cover letter, it's just not important. The first page, if it's boring, you're not going to really want to keep turning the pages. Just say something very straightforward about who you are and, and if you've been published or whatever. And don't tell us how to market the story, too. That's another common <laughs> thing. We have a marketing department that does that. <laughs> As an author, I can say that the biggest thing is you show. You don't tell. <laughs> if you've got nothing to show, forget it. But there are letters that work better than others. I think if you have met or seen the editor or know someone who knows the editor, it doesn't hurt to say, you know, I ran into Betsy Byers at a conference in South Carolina and she said to send you my manuscript. Well, I know what happened there. <laughs> uh, but I do know well, there is this Betsy Byers connection, so maybe I better read this thing because I don't know, maybe she's merely Betsy Byers' best friend and I, you know, have, or Betsy Byers' dentist's best friend. If you can get that personal thing in there, it doesn't hurt. Um, and if you know something about the publishing house and you say something like, I see you won the Newbery two years in a row and I think your house just does wonderful things and I'd love you to be my publisher because you're so wonderful, <laughs> nobody minds being flattered either. 
example, you know, so there's a little bit of, just use that a little bit. Now, <laughs> when we were doing the contest, there was a letter that really made me angry. It says, I bet you no one's going to read this manuscript, and I bet you're going to say you haven't got time to give me any comments on it. I know what you publishers are like. <laughs> and then, to top it all off, the first 60 pages were done in a very pale gray typewriter ribbon. You could hardly read it. Well, this guy made me so mad that I read it. But I, I don't really advise that uh, approach too often. But the very, very worst is the Hollywood agent. They usually call you up and they say, Hi, this is Bill Smith out in Los Angeles. I have this manuscript and I know it's really great because this guy, he's written three screenplays that have almost made it into the motion picture and this is the best thing I have ever read for children. And your house is going to have the opportunity to read it. Can you give me an answer overnight? We do get these phone calls. And then we say, no, it'll take two months. And they say, two months? But you, you're really missing out. I'm going to send this to other people, too. And I say, yeah, uh-huh. You know, nothing ever comes of those. Don't overhype yourself or the material. I mean, everyone else who says keep it simple and straightforward is absolutely right. We don't want to read 20 pages. We just want a, a one-page letter. And, and if you can say something flattering about the house or the editor, <laughs> Do. <laughs> the blind spot. Well, as you can see, uh, once again in publishing, there is no one answer to many questions, and I think that's a prime example. Well, uh, you've been a wonderful audience, and uh, uh, I think you'll agree we had a wonderful panel here tonight, and they really shared with us some of the experience they've had uh, working behind the scenes with each other, and let's give them a great big hand. Thank you.